Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today for another exciting episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading industry experts, clinicians, and researchers to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Reed Robeson of Nova Mind. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Reed. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it'd be really great for our listeners if you could, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do at NovaMind to get started. Sure, uh, happy to. I'm a psychiatrist focused on the therapeutic use of psychedelics and the therapy that goes with it. And I guess from the beginning of my career, I've really focused on helping individuals suffering from treatment-resistant mental health conditions, um, finding new treatments, studying them, and helping people access them in a safe and effective way. So I started out my career in academics, running clinical trials and had a, a genetics lab, um, and uh, got a bit disappointed with the existing therapies. So when ketamine came around a decade ago, I embraced that. Uh, my first ketamine study in 2011, I think. And over the past several years, I've uh, embraced uh, the, the research and clinical use of other psychedelics, uh, um, whatever we can here in the U.S., like ketamine, bravado, and uh, things like MDMA and clinical trials. Uh, but then I also do um, the same legal and above-board psychedelic medicine work in areas where uh where we can, like I work with ayahuasca in retreat settings internationally. Uh, so I uh, am based in Utah. We have a network of uh, mental health clinics here with a special expertise in ketamine assisted psychotherapy. And I'm also uh, working with MAPS as their coordinating investigator for their upcoming eating disorder studies. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I look forward to diving into a lot of this. Ketamine has been the interesting Trojan horse, I feel like, for psychedelic medicine, you know, because we've been using it in clinical practice for so long. Um, and, and it has these uh, interesting psychedelic properties. So I think it's really cool your work with that and kind of spearheading this bravado study. Uh, but it'd be interesting for our listeners to know how you decided to get into working with psychedelic medicine to begin with. I know you said you were pretty disappointed in the state uh accept the treatments that were out there so i'm interested in your journey and kind of how that you know landed you where you are today well looking back on it at the beginning of my career i was doing some psychiatric consult work in icu settings and er when people would be in in crisis and not only did these medicines uh fall short the medicines available not work for a, a high percentage of people but they also just took too long and so when the data came out around ketamine as a rapid antidepressant, uh, it it was really exciting and uh, potentially game-changing. So I, I happened to be in a setting where I could give that uh, in a hospital-based setting with good colleagues and who were very familiar with the medicine, good medical support in those early days. So we, we had great success with it, uh, using it, um, in a, an ER or say ICU or hospital floor after an overdose, for example, while getting onto some other therapy or, or medicine. Um, and so we even set up a, an infusion practice. I was able to get people um, off of uh, 
ECT or vagal nerve stimulators are some of the most uh, serious interventions for depression with ketamine. And, uh, you know, I've never, never looked back. It's not, uh, not a perfect tool by, by any means, but it's been really game changing for my practice. And it's only the beginning. Yeah, that's really fascinating, you know, and uh, I mentioned briefly how ketamine's kind of been the Trojan horse for psychedelic medicine. And it's interesting to see how how people are going about conducting ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is kind of setting the precedent, I imagine, for what other psychedelic-assisted treatments might look like, you know, um, be it with psilocybin or MDMA. And then you know, the, the using of a tool like this to facilitate uh, you know, breakthroughs in the, the therapy setting, I think is pretty profound. Uh, so what are some of the things you're most excited about now and, and where have you, what are the biggest improvements you've seen? I know you said the, the ketamine, for example, works a lot faster than traditional neuropsychiatric medications like SSRIs. Uh, what are some of the other advantages? Yeah, like you said, it's uh, amazing to have a good therapeutic response in, in the majority of people without having to take the daily pill. And uh, and like you pointed out as well, it pairs very well with therapy. It, it opens this window of opportunity to do deep therapeutic work with uh, neuroplasticity like the classic psychedelics uh, bring as well. Um, that really allows the possibility for, for lasting change and not just this brief uh, antidepressant response. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, part of your work I thought was really interesting to learn about your work with MAPS uh, and the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for eating disorders. Uh, and, you know, I, I know a lot of the literature I've read has to do with PTSD, using MDMA for PTSD. So I'm interested about uh, how the, the efficacy of using MDMA for eating disorders and sort of what that treatment looks like. And uh, if you could just talk more about it, I found it really fascinating. Obviously, MAPS is a pretty huge organization in the psychedelic renaissance. Yeah, when I saw their uh, PTSD data from phase two and phase three studies, I was just blown away. Uh, seeing things like a 12-month follow-up where nearly 70% of Participants no longer even met criteria for PTSD uh, after just two or three doses. Um, that just blows out of the water treatment as usual for uh, a condition where good treatment is so needed. Um, and I think the same applies for eating disorders. It's, it's in terms of the unmet need. Uh, there are no FDA approved medicines for anorexia and anorexia happens to be the the deadliest of, of all mental health conditions. Um, and there's only one medicine FDA approved for bulimia that dates back several years, that's Prozac, and one for binge eating disorder. So uh, the, we don't know yet how it will work for eating disorders, but this is certainly the first step. Uh, we're doing a clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for both uh, anorexia nervosa and for binge eating disorder. It's fascinating, and you, so I was seeing that you know the same or the same toolkit of psychedelic compounds are being used for these really challenging neuropsychiatric conditions like treatment-resistant depression, uh, eating disorders. Do you think there is some fundamental mechanism 
uh, of the brain or our psyche that these psychedelic drugs are acting on that may seem to be effective across the, the host of uh, conditions versus maybe our paradigm before was like we need different classes of drugs for all these different conditions. But now it's like, okay, therapy plus the, the right type of psychedelic seems to be pretty effective for a broad range of conditions. Can you explain maybe on a scientific and a neuroscience level why that might be happening? Sure. It, it's, a, it's a really good point and good question that's intrigued me for years. You know, why do some conditions that are that appear very different respond to the same treatment? Um, and something that struck me uh, within the past few years with relevance to psychedelic medicine is a paper by Robin Carr Harrison colleagues about uh, well, it's about the default mode network, but also this this unified theory of of mental illness that uh, shows that you could plot everything on a spectrum from entropy or or disorder or un loss of control on the one hand to over control and rigidity on the other. So, for example, OCD, where you're not able to touch things or go out of your house due to fear of germs, for example, that would be on the over control spectrum on the opposite end where there's uh, entropy or, or loss of control. You might have, you know, binge eating, uh, on the far end, psychosis, uh, substance abuse, inability to stop a pattern. And if we even depression, anxiety, if we take time out of the equation and oversimplify it, depression, being like regret about the past, anxiety, worrying about the future. Um, they get a lot more similar when you take out that time component in the sense that some brains are, are too locked, some brains too loose. And there's this balance in the middle that I think uh, psychedelics help us, uh, you know, swing the pendulum towards that. And a lot of it has to do with uh, down-regulating that default mode network uh, breaking those uh, chains that bind us and lock us into patterns of repeating the same thing over and over again and give us a chance to lay down new pathways, new patterns, new ways of being, um, swinging back from that over control side of the spectrum, especially. That's really cool. I was recording a podcast yesterday and, you know, I was talking to the guests they had on about how that new Hopkins study that talked about how psilocybin was four times more effective than antidepressants. And I talked about how the mechanism by which it did that, whereas the SSRIs would reduce activity in the amygdala, which is responsible for fear and negative emotions, uh, the psilocybin would actually increase activity in that area of the brain. And I guess the the theory was that it facilitates patients sort of facing their fears and dealing with the negative emotions in that moment with the therapist in that, you know, neuroplastic state, then kind of using a drug you take every day, like an SSRI to kind of dampen that, you know, and to try and ignore it. I think it'd be interesting if you could comment on that because I seem to be seeing a, a, a more of that. And it's really interesting to me. Yeah, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, it reminds me of, uh, Another key point in the equation is the fundamental difference between, say, SSRIs and psychedelics, where SSRIs, they both work on serotonin receptors, among, among other things, but in very different ways. Those SSRIs work on, uh, one of the ways they work is on 5-HT1A receptor signaling, where they reduce this 
limbic responsiveness to it. And that can lead to feeling a little less depressed in some ways, but it's also emotionally blunting. Whereas uh, psychedelics and their 5-HT2A receptor um, activity results in this enhanced sensitivity to emotions, emotional release. When you combine that with like psychotherapeutic support, you get something that's pretty potent. Um, so that's one, uh, I think, key difference between the two. This initial blast of serotonin from psychedelics uh, produces this loosening of the mind and a general like increase in optimism, well-being, new ways of seeing oneself in the world. Wow, that's really incredible. Uh, so I'm interested to know from your perspective, what are the best more research different types of clinical trials are taking place. What sort of progress do you want to see in the field? What sort of uh, mysteries do you, would you really like to uncover, you know, uh, as you move forward over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think we're, we're now, we have this undeniable evidence that these can be powerful tools for a variety of mental health conditions. And now we as a field get to move into the specifics of uh, who should get what medicine and when and in what order, uh, for example, what what is the optimal pathway to healing for someone with, say, severe PTSD, with uh, longstanding treatment-resistant depression, with uh, you know, severe and persistent anorexia, for example. Um, and then uh, we also get to look at, look at some other specific areas uh, that I think is um, very important in the path forward, like what therapy pairs best with a given psychedelic or a given condition and how to optimize the, well, the effects and make them last. Like to give you an example, in the MAP study for eating disorders, we've included this caregiver component uh, where the, the caregiver, say uh, a parent of the adult participant or a spouse, even um, sibling, someone who's heavily involved, uh, they don't get the medicine as well in this protocol, but they're heavily involved getting sessions of their own to get new skills for supporting their loved one and participating in certain integration sessions and things like that, because there's only so much we can do in the therapy room in an hour or two. Um, and even though psychedelic medicines are, um, are so potent and can yield what feels like, uh, you know, hours and hours of therapy in a session, you're still facing this challenge of, uh, what do you do when you get home and back into the, the the default world? And so I'm excited about studies shedding light on those kinds of things. Yeah, that's really fascinating. The concept of integration is obviously a big discussion that you know is taking place in the psychedelic community and uh, important across the spectrum. Whether you're you know going to an ayahuasca retreat for psychospiritual reasons or you know a patient in, in one of your trials. Uh, I, I think that's incredibly important. Uh, one of the things you talked about, well, I thought was interesting, is the order of uh, 
the order of operations, I guess, uh, if we're using multiple psychedelic substances, or maybe this is how I interpreted it. Uh, how do you think we'll go about determining what sort of patients, I know you guys are doing this trial right now, studying, investigating maps for eating disorders. Uh, perhaps in the future, there will be a paradigm where some patients will need multiple different psychedelic treatments. And then those therapies will all look so different, especially since, for example, psilocybin can last six hours long versus ketamine is only one hour long. Uh, do you think it's just gonna be through trial and error that we're gonna figure this out? Are we gonna draw on maybe indigenous practices and how they went about using those medicines or a combination of them? Well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we uh, we need to learn from from all of those sources of wisdom, old and new, we need to study them, test them, you know, in a smart, safe and effective way. And just, I think we can use, we can use what we're learning and apply it to new paradigms, new protocols. For example, I'm doing a clinical trial here in clinic for a borderline personality disorder. It's not a psychedelic study, but um, I would love to eventually do a psychedelic study for this condition that doesn't have any FDA approved treatments uh, and, you know, bring so much suffering to the individuals and their loved ones. But uh, it's, a, it's a more difficult one because sometimes in psychedelic medicine, you feel worse before feeling better. And I can think of how, combinations like MDMA to create a safe container lets you move towards those difficult emotional states or memories. And then something like psilocybin to dissolve ego structures and, uh, you know, make new connections, form new pathways uh, could be a powerful combination in, in the right way. But in order to do studies like that, we've got to get, get each of them approved individually. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's fascinating to, to see this treatment landscape unfold. And it's so so different from the way we traditionally approach pharmaceutical drugs and treating these conditions. And I think it's really interesting to see uh, how that all sort of falls into place. Um, so, you know, you've been a, a, a medical doctor in, in, some, in practice for some time. And I'm interested to see or hear from you uh, as this renaissance has sort of been unfolding uh, what's been the biggest things that you've seen change as far as a public perception and maybe perception among your colleagues about psychedelic drugs? Uh, and, you know, I know when the medical cannabis movement was sort of unfolding, uh, there was definitely a lot of physicians that jumped on wanting to learn more about the endocannabinoid system and providing that for their patients. And, you know, there's another group of physicians that weren't so keen on kind of getting on board. So what is the landscape look like now as far as clinicians and providers and psychedelic medicine? You know, I've been very pleasantly surprised uh, by the public opinion and the kind of professional acceptance of these tools. It's funny to look back on uh, when I finished uh, medical school in 2005 and was entering psychiatry residency training it was uh, not cool to go into psychiatry. It was not hard to get a spot. Uh, I almost got made fun of by colleagues. I didn't care one bit. I was fascinated by the human brain's <laughs> behavior. Yeah. But uh, there were just a few of us who went into psychiatry. We had our pick of where to go train. 
Um, but fast forward, uh, you know, a decade and a half later, uh, someone told me the other day that, you know, psychiatry is the new dermatology, meaning, you know, it's hard to get a spot in a, in a good program. And uh, there's this much needed renewed vigor in um, mental health. And psychedelics uh, play a big part in that. Every day there's a new documentary or news story, whether it's CNN or NPR or all over the place. Uh, I get articles from family members. My, uh, my kids are paying attention to the field. Uh, you know, these, uh, I remember one of my twin uh, 12 year olds said recently, dad, can you uh, help me buy some shroomy stocks? Talking about like <laughs> compass pathways and things like that. <laughs> that's adorable. And no, that's really exciting. It's, uh, it's exciting as people definitely have on by and large seem to be very excited about the Renaissance and uh, all the promise and clinical potential that it holds. Um, so on that note, I'm interested to know what you are most excited about moving forward this point you know and the future and uh as far as new therapeutics goes and the work you're doing you know, next i want to touch a little more base about the work you're doing at nova mind uh, but yeah why don't you share a little bit about what you're uh, excited to see as we move forward it's an exciting time to be in psychiatry uh, because there's hope on the horizon we're entering this new chapter of mental health and i where we have these new tools coming down the pipeline and some available now, like ketamine, S-ketamine or Spravato, uh, MDMA moving through clinic, clinical trials and the drug development process with just uh, excitingly positive results. Uh, so I've never seen anything as, as effective and that also get at the root cause of mental health condition with lasting change that doesn't even require a daily pill. And I think the challenge now is how to open up access to these tools for healing and growth to individuals who need it. And that's what we're focusing on at Mind. We're building clinics, uh, retreats, research sites to help bring psychedelic therapies to the people who need it most uh, and in everyday healthcare. That's amazing. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about you, your team at NovaMind and how you guys are planning on making this sort of treatment more accessible to, you know, the, the world at large. Sure. Well, we have uh, a network of clinics and research sites tied to many of those clinics because of this era we're in where these tools are, are coming and they need to move through that process of, uh, clinical research, and we need to be ready for them uh, to give them as uh, treatment options in clinic. And it's a new way of practicing psychiatry that, uh, you know, represents a paradigm shift and really needs, um, you know, all hands on deck and people to get ready for. So that's, that's uh, one way we're approaching it is by building uh acquiring and expanding on clinics uh, and research sites. We're also working on a, a hybrid model of clinics and retreats where say people, people do it uh, sometimes where I'm sitting, they'll fly into Utah 
for a course of a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy over a week or two, um, whether it's a, a family with an individual who's really, uh, really suffering or groups, and then, uh, you know, go home and continue to work with uh, their therapist there or us remotely and, uh, you know, schedule whatever makes sense to come back. And uh, so that's, uh, that's, I think, the main way we're approaching this challenge of, uh, of getting ready for this new era of psychedelic medicine. That's really cool. And so I'm curious to know, obviously, there are the traditional psychedelic drugs. There's also this movement to create derivatives and novel patentable formulations of psychedelic drugs. Do you think in clinics like uh, at NovaMind, they'll just be using the traditional psychedelic compounds? Do you think there's room or an opportunity to use novel compounds as a part of the treatment model? Maybe it'll be a hybrid approach of the two. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, uh, we're, we're ready for the research studies of these no, novel compounds. And when they're approved, uh, you, you know, we'll roll out uh, evidence-based treatment options uh, for the indications uh, that need them, that they get approved for. Uh, for example, uh, there's news, there's been news lately about uh, DMT for uh, certain conditions. Um, you know, a lot of uh, news coming from, uh, from Europe, but even, even in the U.S. And I'm looking forward to, to bringing that into clinics and giving IV DMT for severe depression or whatever uh, the protocol calls for. And that's, uh, a, I think, a beautiful byproduct of this psychedelic renaissance and, and the movement and the resources around it is that we can finally... Uh, study these medicines, um, put them to the test, and bring in the ones that uh, that have evidence to support it. And that's why I like having the research clinic and uh, you know the mental health clinic model tied together. Because when someone comes into clinic uh, and we do an evaluation with them, we can say, okay, uh, we have traditional talk therapy, traditional medications. So we have spravato covered by insurance if you have a certain uh, condition, for example, ketamine, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, or a clinical trial of, of XYZ um, or other innovative modalities like transcranial magnetic stimulation or whatever is available, um, you know, even if it's new, if it's, uh, you know, an evidence-based strategy, we're, uh, we're working on bringing it into clinic. That's super cool. Uh, IV DMT, that sounds really, really intense and really out of the box. I'd be really interested to see, you know, how those studies transpire and unfold because uh, I definitely read a little bit about it. I know Entheon Biomedical, I think, is maybe taking an approach somewhat similar. Uh, so it's really fascinating to see that sort of come to light. Um, as we come towards the end of our discussion here, I think it'd be really interesting for you to share, you know, with aspiring medical students, uh, of which I was one at one point in time before I found my, cool. my place in, in all of this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for aspiring medical students that want to get into psychedelic medicine and, uh, you know, be where you're at today. What is your advice to them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I get asked a lot how to get into psychedelic uh, therapy as a clinician, as a 
prescriber or therapist. And, you know, there it's here and there are so many ways to do that. You know, ketamine is becoming more and more accessible. There are uh, trainings out there. There are networks of, of uh, practitioners. Like I'm a part of Bill Wolfson's ketamine psychotherapy associates, for example, where, where we'll gather together and, and discuss you know, lessons learned and insights we're all gaining on the way and get, mentorship from from dr phil one of the greats uh in in this space Mm -hmm. uh, as an example and then there are these fda approved uh therapeutic psychedelic type medicines coming like spravato uh where it's uh you can um align yourself with or become a treatment center uh you know while it might be hard to uh get into a MAPS therapist training program at the moment, uh, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a huge need for more and more sites for PTSD when and and assuming that this uh, medicine is approved before too long. And so that capacity will need to ramp up just like it will with Compass Pathways and and or USONA and psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. In the meantime, you know, keeping up the literature, honing your skills, especially uh, therapy skills, using the modalities that pair especially well with psychedelics. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it's it's coming. It's going to be more and more widespread in, uh, you know, clinics and uh, academic centers and, and beyond uh, as the year and uh, the next few years progresses. And I imagine as this happens, uh, psychedelic medicine will find its way into the medical curriculum um, for medical students to learn more about than they might have been learning about the last 10 or 20 years uh, moving forward. Is that correct? Yeah, I can't think of uh, a single lecture I got on psychedelics in medical school. I mean, it was a fire hose of topics and so it's possible i i missed something but <laughs> yeah. uh but yeah that and but now you have announcements like in the last week you know another academic uh psychedelic research institution in new york for example and mm-hmm. that we have this uh interest group here in utah at the university of utah psychedelic uh um science interest group and uh started by some friends and colleagues at the University of Utah where I'm a volunteer faculty and and it was incredible to see it go from a group of people around a conference table to a packed auditorium with several hundred people involved in in a university uh, group like that yeah Absolutely. Wow, that's really incredible. And we truly do live in an exciting time. Uh, Dr. Robeson, I always give my guests the final word on my show. And if you have a message you'd like to share with our audience, a closing thought, you know, the mic's all yours. Uh, thank you. And on that uh, topic, we were just addressing of how to, how to contribute to this exciting time. I would just say the best place to start is you know, where you are right now, uh, you don't need to drop it all and focus on, you know, saving the world with, uh, you know, one medicine or or another, but we can all just reflect on the ways 
that the work we do uh, acts in systemic ways or has these ripple effects and consider that even increasing our, uh, our focus by just one degree um, can have uh, such huge lasting effects uh, for the uh, individuals and communities that uh, are around us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Robis, and I really appreciate it. If you could let our listeners know uh, if they have any questions or they want to find out more about you or Nova Mind, where can they do that? Sure, you can uh, find out all about us at novamind.ca. Uh, Novamind's based in Canada, and our uh, clinics are linked to from there or at cedarpsychiatry.com. Amazing. And uh, for all our listeners, this show can be found on YouTube as well as iTunes and Spotify. This is another great episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast where we talk to the Chief Medical Officer of Novamind, Dr. Reed Robeson. Thank you so much for your time and coming on the show and all your deep insights and contributions. I really appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Talk to you again soon. Take care. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series. Brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.